and welcome to Map Bites, episode 136. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're bank breaking, toy tweaking and money saving to the max. First, Back Bites. Simon was with us during the live premiere of the show on MacBytes FM after marooned at MacBytes headquarters. Uh, he was following along with the David Hockney does Beethoven thing. He headed off to see it. Big mistake, hey, Simon? Uh, he, his comment was, and I quote, OMG, Hockney's Beethoven is terrible. It reminds me of that church icon that an old lady tried to restore. Oh, Simon. Spot on. I checked that fresco out and comparing it with the Hoff by Hockney. Do you know what? She did not do a bad job, which just reflects how bad the Hoff is, not how good hers or her work was. It's a thing, apparently. Worthy of an article in The Guardian calling for safeguards to be put in place to ensure these hack jobs don't happen again. Mm. Now, if only someone could ensure David Hockney's iPad could be suitably protected from his Apple commissions, we could all sleep easier. Anyway, thank you, Simon. Glad you enjoyed the show. So shall we have a bit of a catch up, Mike? Why not? We mentioned the most talked about thing about the new AirPods Max last time, the price. Well, no matter how horrified you were by the price, weren't we all? It seems we're looking at it all wrong by a considerable amount. Caviar, a luxury Russian brand, are selling a pair of AirPods Max for $108,000. I kid you not. 200 times the Apple price. Gold plated with a crocodile leather headband, available in black or white. I have one question. Who buys these things? Seriously, you'd have to have a mental disorder to believe spending that amount on these headphones was a reasonable thing to do. To answer your question as to who buys these things, footballers and their wives, or wags, as they're known in the British press. Well, it didn't end there. Oh no, a bit more research was needed. The same company are selling Caviar iPhone 12 Pro Victory Pure Gold models. It's an encrusted version of Apple's latest handset. Encrusted with what? Glad you asked. Precious metal and diamonds. All for only $45,000. Then something more unique. This one comes in the form of an iPhone 12 Pro replete with a tiny square of fabric from one of Steve Jobs' turtlenecks tucked under the Apple logo on the back. Not even joking here. This price, and this actually, by comparison to others, is quite a bargain. Upwards from a starting price of $7,290. They also provide an iPhone 12 Pro Apple One edition. That one started at only, you see, I'm getting into this now, only, at $9,990. This one boasted an inlaid decorative scrap of an original Apple One motherboard supposedly signed by Steve Wozniak. So now you don't need to feel so bad splashing out on a pair of the AirPods backs. Positive bargain by comparison to these beauties. And, and actually, they, they don't look good either. Do, do check them out. You can explain to your muggle mates not how you spent $550 on a pair of new headphones, but rather how you saved well over $107,400 when you bought your AirPods Max. You can thank me later, folks. 
Having said that, you might want to consider this next piece before parting with any kind of cash for the AirPods Max. I didn't expect Apple to manage to squeeze in another gate before the end of 2020, but congratulations to all of Cupertino for this beauty. Condensation gate, I kid you not. Social media was alive with reports of AirPods Max that are found, and I apologise if you're eating or drinking, but you should know the wisdom, or otherwise, of that during a MacBytes by now. Anyway, as I was saying, social media alive with reports of AirPods Max found dripping with sweat. Somewhat reminiscent of Earwaxgate. Just as disruptive to the enjoyment of your audio too. Said sweat is impacting the copious number of sensors within the AirPods Max underneath the magnetic earpads. On removing said earpads, many users reported they could pour the offending liquid from the cups. I'm going to spare you any further details, but safe to say it wasn't a pretty sight. Can't wait to hear what Timmy has to say about this. Another issue he'll probably want to avoid on MacBytes Question Time with Timmy. Changing tack, BBC Tech recently had a story about a mood tracking wristband. Sounds reasonable. Potentially useless, but, you know, let's start with an open mind. Nothing automatic about this. There are two buttons on it. I'm happy and I'm sad. Buttons. Yes, you have to press the relevant button yourself. I can see that if you're incensed about something, that's my normal state, isn't it? I'd be prepared to press a button, but pressing the button is probably not the first thing you'd think of if you were busy enjoying yourself. So some automation would have been nice. Otherwise, it's pretty much a waste of time. Anyway, at this point, I was on the side of it being a gimmick. And then it just got plain creepy. The latest use of these things is employers tracking the moods of their employees. What the actual? Talk about intrusive. How about you just treat your employees well? Then they'll always be happy. However, I can imagine any employers deploying these things could well come to regret it. A case of careful what can of worms you open. They could find themselves inundated with occupational health issues. So great innovative technology or unnecessarily intrusive pointless paraphernalia. I know where my vote's going, but Mike may have other ideas. We have a monthly meeting at work and as part of that meeting, we have some kind of poll uh, and it goes from, it's it's all to do with your, your mental health and it goes from I'm feeling depressed to I need to talk to somebody to I'm feeling okay uh, to I'm living my best life and it's, it's all to do with how you've been whilst working from home during lockdown in COVID. So I would say that that is the... Um, the analogue version, although, well, well, I was going to say we don't have to press a button, but actually you do because you've got to vote. So it's it's pretty similar. Sometimes there are no words. Can I just say, right, this COVID malarkey, obviously huge impact, global pandemic and all of that. But you're working from home every day. So not only are you living your best life, I'm assuming that's what you said, but I'm living my best life as well. So could we just leave it like that? I could do without the COVID bit, but living our best life with you working from home, that works for me. Yeah, I am living my best life. Oh, I'm glad that you did tell them that. Uh, 
There are times you see a text story and you do a double take. Then there are times you do a triple take and are still none the wiser as to what is going on. And this was one of those times. Basically, this was a pair of gym jams with no backside in them. You mean they had an illuminated backside? Pretty much. The headline was, and I quote, Viral buttless pyjamas add sparks confusion. What's to be confused about? They're gym jams with no backside in. Somewhat reminiscent of a pair of combinations, including the associated buttoned cat flap. Wasn't that for ease of access? Oh, these buttless gym jams certainly have ease of access as a top priority. We can only speculate what that might be for. But suffice it to say, with a pair of these and the current weather in the UK, you'd be more than a little chilly round the trussocks. Not kidding, we had snow on Easter Monday and a snow and hail storm the following day. It's April for crying out loud. But at least, do you see what I did there? But, <laughs> but at least with a pair of these, you'd be on the cutting edge of fashion. Hmm. Anyway, let's head on to something that for once didn't involve me causing a problem. It started with shopping with Elaine, but it turned into banking with Mike. Simple job, hey, Mike? Simple. It should have been a simple task. Paying your credit card bill. You know, the one that you used to buy the iMac. Oh, I know the one. <laughs> if the bank hadn't forced a completely new credit card on you, even though the old one hadn't expired. If the bank hadn't forced you to provide a phone number to be able to use online banking. And we all know how much you love giving out your phone number, don't we? Mm-hmm. Not happening. None of this would have happened but for all of that. At Mabai's headquarters, Elaine looks after the tech and I look after the household chores. And that includes paying the bills. A long time ago, I set up my online banking to pay Elaine's credit cards. And my bank account is with the NatWest. Each month, I use the NatWest app on my phone to pay the bill. Elaine's credit cards, by the way, are from the same bank, the NatWest. Because it was a new credit card, before I could pay the bill, I had to set it up in the app. So what you do is you go in the app and you tap pay, pay someone new. And a form appears asking for the account details of the recipient and their account number and their sort code. Now, the sort code for non-UK listeners is a six-digit number, which identifies the bank and the branch location. The NatWest sort code was written on the bill, but not the account number. So I goes off to do the Googles and I found a forum where somebody had exactly the same problem. Now, one person replied, enter eight zeros because the account number is eight digits. But I wanted confirmation of this because I don't believe everything you read on a forum. So I rang the bank. And they confirmed that you can use eight zeros, but you can also use the account number where the money is going to be deposited. But I didn't have the account number. Anyway, after a few security checks, the nice lady gave it to me. So I returned to the app. I entered these details, including the 16 digit number on Elaine's new credit card. I typed in the amount that I wanted to pay which was over three and a half thousand pounds, because remember, it was the iMac that we were paying for. 
and it popped up a message that said there's a limit of £1,000 per day when paying someone new. To make a payment of a higher amount, it advised me to use online banking. Now, online banking is not the same as the app. Online banking is via the NatWest website in a browser. That can be done on a computer or mobile device. And the app is, well, the mobile app. So I logged into the website and I went through the same process. Pay someone new. Enter the details of the recipient, including the 16-digit number. And because I was paying somebody new, I needed to use my card reader, which was hidden away in a drawer because the last time I used it was many months ago. I also needed to find my debit card. The card reader isn't much use without the card that it needs to read. And as, as I've not been out since last March, the card hasn't been used. Eventually, I found my card in my wallet, which was also at the back of the drawer. I put the card into the reader and followed the prompts. A number appears in my browser, which I had to type into the card reader. A number then appeared on the card reader screen, which I had to type into a field in the browser. I duly did this and a message appeared, incorrect number. I was sure that I'd actually typed the number correctly. On the card reader screen, it's eight digits, but split up with a space. So four digits, space, four digits. Nowhere does it actually tell you whether or not to include the space when typing into the browser. So I tried again, this time without the space. And once again, it came back and told me that the number I typed in was wrong. It also said that I had one more attempt. And if I got it wrong again, my card would be locked. So I decided it was time to hit the need help button on the website. And up popped Cora, the digital assistant. After five minutes of text-based conversation, Cora was unable to provide me with an answer, suggesting transferring me to a support agent. A real person. Have you any idea how badly my eyes are rolling at this I point? I can imagine. Digital assistant. Anyway, whilst waiting to speak to this real person, and when I say speak, not speak speak, it was still on the website text chat speak thingy. You suggested that we pay off the minimum and, if it all went wrong, claim back any interest off the bank. I actually had a similar idea. My idea was to pay it off over four days. So £1,000 a day for three days and then 500 or so on day four. As long as it was all paid off by the 29th, we wouldn't need to pay any interest. When paying by requesting fast transaction, whatever that is, it goes through in two hours. I didn't go into the details of fast transaction. I just thought, well, if it goes in two hours, great. Now, I eventually got to the front of the queue, explained my predicament, and real person explained that Cora was a bot and could only reply with stock answers. He apologised for Cora causing more confusion. And he confirmed that paying off in instalments would be OK and confirmed that fast transactions work seven days a week, including holidays and weekends. Because in the old days, business days meant Monday to Friday 
and excluded national holidays. So with that, I paid off the first instalment via the app and Lola got her walk. <laughs> yes, she'd been waiting about 45 minutes for this walk. She gave better answers than Cora did, to be honest. So we moved on to day two. I logged into the NatWest app on my phone and paid off the next instalment of £1,000. And there the story should have ended, except I also needed to pay the gas bill. I used to pay the gas bill at a shop around the corner. There are certain shops in the UK that can take electricity and gas bill payments, but the shop has since closed down and, as I said, I hadn't been out since March anyway. So in June, when we got our first gas bill since lockdown, I paid it via the app and luckily it was under £1,000, way under. I did the same thing in September and I intended to continue doing this every time there was a, a bill. So I logged into the NatWest app. The gas company was in my list of saved recipients because I would paid them before via the app. So I selected the gas company from the list of saved recipients, typed in the amount to pay and got a message. Sorry, you've reached your £1,000 limit per day. Turns out that this limit is not £1,000 per transaction, as previously claimed. It's a combined daily limit for all transactions where you haven't paid that person or company before using online banking. I'd only ever paid the gas company via the app. I'd hit my £1,000 daily limit with the one transaction, the credit card repayment. So I decided to risk using online banking because I assumed that the three strikes and you're out with the card reader would reset at midnight. How wrong was I? My card got locked. So it was back to Cora, your favourite digital assistant. Oh, indeed. With your eyes still rolling. Cora still couldn't help me, but Vikas, the real person, did. He unlocked my card. And how did I pay the gas bill? There's a phone number you can call. It's written on the back of the gas bill. You enter your gas customer number, give them the 16-digit code from your payment card, along with the expiry date and the three digits on the back. They even sent me a confirmation text so I can prove that I've paid. So day three came, logged into the NatWest app, paid off £1,000. On day four, having paid off £3,000, I paid off the rest and we were done. So that is my Banking with Mike moment. You can now see why Elaine isn't allowed anywhere near the online banking or the mobile app. She's a bear of very little patience to start with, as you all know. And all of that would have had her incarcerated at Her Majesty's pleasure for the duration. Can I just say, it's a good job we hadn't left paying the bill until the last day to make the payment. Is it really that difficult to make online or mobile banking secure without all this mess? The technology is there. It just seems to be implemented by Muppets with a brain disorder. Totally agree. Shenanigans didn't stop there either, did it? Do we talk about busy cow licence renewal? Oh, <laughs> feel free. Sit back and wait for the, what is it, blue touch paper to be lit. Oh, indeed. You're giving the end away again. Spoiler, spoiler. No, not, not really. It's, it's much more exciting than that. 
We've been busy Cal users for many years. Back in the old days, we actually had a great relationship with the developers. We regularly sent them bug reports, all of which had been discovered by Elaine. One day during the first week of January, I ran BusyCal on my Mac and got a message. It said, renew your license to update BusyCal. Version 3.12.2 is now available and you have 3.12.1. Your license is valid for updates released on or before the 1st of January 2021. You can update to the latest version by renewing your license or keep the, using the current version of BusyCal forever. Now, when we originally bought version one of the app way back in 2009, the licensing model was simple. Buy a license and we were covered for all updates until version two came out. When version two came out, you could continue to use version one without making further payments or pay to upgrade to version two. At this point, we were covered for all updates until version three came out at which point we either pay for version 3 or continue to use version 2. In other words, a standard perpetual license. So, off to BusyMac's website I went to see what gives. All is explained in a blog post titled, Our Apps Are Entering a New Phase. I won't read it all, there's a link in the show notes, so I will summarise. This is how it goes. By the end of January 2021, BusyCal and Busy Contacts on the App Store are going to be available via subscription only. We'll still continue to, to sell buy once perpetual licenses when purchasing directly from us. So, yes, folks, another subscription. It's also available on Setup, which in itself is another subscription. They then go on to say, we get it, subscriptions aren't for everyone. And so we've got you covered. You don't have to pay a subscription to use our apps. As an exclusive offer for our App Store users, you can switch over to our direct non-subscription perpetual license for free. Then they kind of try and justify it. Part of the reason why we didn't push for a paid upgrade for over four years that's four years plus of continuous development and support, was because deep down we felt Apple may offer developers another licensing option, one where we're able to offer free trials to our users and have the flexibility of distributing optional paid upgrades. After years of waiting, it's now clear that Apple sees the App Store suited particularly well for subscriptions instead. Since we're looking for a sustainable future in building and supporting our complex applications, we decided the only way forward is to offer an optionally renewable perpetual license directly via our store, something Apple does not plan to offer, while offering a subscription on the Mac App Store, a win-win. Both the App Store version and the direct version will offer the same features and functionality, and both will be supported for life. Yes, the perpetual license gives you a lifetime license that never expires. However, it's valid for 18 months of free updates starting from the date of purchase. If you want to continue to receive updates after 18 months, you'll need to renew your license. Is this a subscription? 
Well, in my view, not exactly, because with a subscription, if you stop paying, you lose access to the service or product. Here, if you don't renew after 18 months, you can continue to use the app. You just won't get any more updates. Of course, at some point, the app will stop working, most likely down to something that Apple do. So you're only delaying the inevitable. I did say that I wasn't going to read the entire blog post, but one of the FAQs nicely explains their thinking behind what they've done. And when that explanation includes phrases like iCloud decides to suddenly change something without notice, a phrase that strikes fear into Elaine's heart, I thought it was worth reading it out to you or at least summarising it. Every 12 to 18 months, we issued a new paid update to the app and abandoned supporting the previous versions entirely, which meant that customers on existing versions had to pay to upgrade or stay on the version they're on. So why did we change? Releasing a major upgrade means changing the app's internal app identifier, which means everything that works already perfectly breaks for the user. Users have to go through a proper migration of their database during which there's a chance that something might go wrong and the user may actually lose data. Then one needs to deal with backups and restores. There's also having to deal with a proper uninstall of the previous version. Users still at times get double alerts from BusyCal 2 and BusyCal 3 where the uninstall after an update did not go as planned. It's a nightmare. Not to mention remarketing and rebranding it whilst forcibly making UI changes to justify the majorness of the app, many times annoying our customers further with a steep new learning curve. Secondly, everything around us has changed, literally. macOS updates have been a lot more regular and a lot more disruptive. iCloud, Google, Microsoft seem to be changing their service regularly. Something breaks, we spend a month fixing it. Apple all of a sudden decides to break reminders and the burden is upon us to literally rewrite a major portion of the app. For the user, this is a minor bug fix, while for us it's months of hard work, a major rewrite and a lot of stress supporting this going forward. Then iCloud suddenly changes something without notice or introduces a new pressing change such as an app-specific password requirement. Suddenly, last year, online meetings became a thing. All of a sudden, all calendaring apps must provide some level of integration. We're quite literally providing a service on top of existing services that are constantly changing and evolving. In short, the line that was previously drawn between bug fixes and major updates has almost diminished. It's become increasingly difficult to sustain without charging our customers monthly, like many companies now do, which is annoying. So what do you do if you don't personally like subscriptions and aren't getting paid at all for the work and support you've been doing for five plus years with free updates? And making a new hire is impossible because they ask you for a fee that you no longer make as a company. You make it fair and begin charging for updates based on a set period. And this way, customers get big and small features irrespectively and we get paid for real work. The industry standard is 12 months. 
we switched to 18. We also kept renewals optional. Renew only if you find good value in our updates. Will I upgrade? Well, I've got no choice. I use BusyCal on a daily basis. I find it easier to do things like duplicate events than Google Calendar in a browser. I don't like how Google Calendar dis displays events that are happening at the same time. They overlap each other, whereas BusyCal displays them side by side. It's easier to read. I could give Fantastical a try, but at £39, it's actually more expensive than a BusyCal renewal, which is about 22 And that 39 I presume, is per year, not per 18 months. I would think so, yeah. I think they pitched the price about right, but that was probably it. So, what am I going to do? Hmm. Can we just go through that lot again and I'll tell you precisely what I think, Mike? Yes. Take it from We Get It. Subscriptions aren't for everyone. Where you go. We get it. Subscriptions aren't for everyone. And so we've got you covered. With a subscription. You don't have to pay a subscription to use our apps. But if you don't, you won't get any updates beyond the expiry of your formerly perpetual licence. As an exclusive offer for our App Store users, you could switch over to our direct, non-subscription, perpetual licence for free. We want you to be our customer, not Apple's. Part of the reason why we didn't push for a paid upgrade for over four years, that's four years plus of continuous development and support, was because deep down, we felt Apple may offer developers another licensing option. One where we're able to offer free trials to our users and have the flexibility of distributing optional paid upgrades. Why are you relying on Apple to do anything to help you? Apple is interested in their bottom line and not yours. Plus the fact, free trials, other companies manage it. After years of waiting, it's now clear that Apple sees the App Store suited particularly well for subscriptions instead. Don't we know it? If Apple didn't make subscriptions as easy as they do, we as app users wouldn't be being bombarded with them. Again, Apple interested in Apple's bottom line. And that is much healthier skimming 30% off a recurring payment than a single outright purchase. Since we're looking for a sustainable future in building and supporting our complex applications, we decided the only way forward is to offer an optionally renewable perpetual license directly via our store, something Apple does not plan to offer, while offering a subscription on the Mac App Store. A win-win. What? We're trying to have our cake and eat it as well. We're petrified to pull our app from the Mac App Store. And yes, the Mac App Store promises us an easily implemented subscription service. But we also want to claim that we're providing a perpetual license. And we'll do that by only giving you updates for a set period of time. Then you pay for another period of updates. Whoops, that sounds like a subscription. Yes, that would be because it is. Both the App Store version and the Direct version will offer the same features and functionality and both will be supported for life. For life? Who's life? As long as you pay for updates, it will be supported for life. Every 12 to 18 months, we issued a new paid update to the app and abandoned supporting the previous version entirely, which meant that customers on existing versions 
had to pay to upgrade or stay on the version they're on. How exactly is that different from your new proposal? So, why did we change? Because we saw Fantastical become a subscription app and they didn't die or get shot down in flames. So, we thought we'd try it. Releasing a major upgrade means changing the app's internal app identifier, which means everything that works already perfectly breaks for the user. What? <laughs> Sometimes there are just no, no words. Say that again slowly, Mike. <laughs> Releasing a major upgrade means changing the app's internal app identifier. Come on, we can do that. <laughs> Which means everything that works perfectly breaks for the user. Was the copywriter smoking something exotic as they wrote that? I have, I have no idea what that means. Internal app identifier breaks everything. Look, if the app you've got was working and they bring a new one out, the one you've got doesn't break. Seriously, I want why he's on. Wacky wacky. Oh, come on, we're going to take this seriously. Come on. Oh, they think we're swallowing all this, you know. They, they think we're buying all this. Right, come on. Okay, users have to go through a migration point. or something. <laughs> yeah, users have to go through a proper migration of their database, during which there's a chance that something might go wrong because the user may actually lose data. It's your app, so make sure that doesn't happen. Then one needs to deal with backups and restores. Yes, and... There's also having to deal with a proper uninstall of the previous version. <clears throat> Have you heard of an uninstaller? Useful thing many developers provide for apps way more integrated into the underlying operating system than BusyCal. Users still at times get double alerts from BusyCal 2 and BusyCal 3 where the uninstall after an update did not go as planned. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <clears throat> so, why don't you fix it? There's a concept. So fix it, dear Lysa, dear Lysa, dear Lysa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are having too much fun with this. Go on. Not to mention remarketing and rebranding it whilst forcibly making UI changes to justify the majorness of the app, many times annoying our customers further with a steep new learning curve. Annoying customers. Glad you mentioned that. Yes, like when you unilaterally changed the calendar colours and provided no option for using the previous palette and then told the users to, and I quote, suck it up. Secondly, Everything around us has changed, literally. Ah, that's called life. Mac OS updates have been a lot more regular and a lot more disruptive. Tell me about it. Every Mac user faces the same issues. However, despite all that, I managed to get my workload done, including coming up to 400 episodes of Marooned at MacBytes headquarters during said global pandemic, during stuff falling over left and right, because... That's what it's like. That's what happens. iCloud, Google, Microsoft seem to be changing their service regularly. I know. I use them all. Something breaks, then we spend a month fixing it. Sounds just like my life. 
I have advice. Grow a pair and deal with it. Apple all of a sudden decide to break reminders and the burden is upon us to literally rewrite a major portion of the app. (laughs) Why were you relying on Apple in the first place? I gave up that madness years ago. For the user, this is a minor bug fix, while for us, it's months of hard work, a major rewrite and a lot of stress supporting this going forward. You chose to be software developers. It's part of the job. When Mike and I started training computer users, it was in a room face to face with those learners. Our skills were focused on that dynamic. Over the years, as the world changed, we had to learn to train remotely on a million different delivery platforms. We had to skill up on audio production, video production and so much more. We both know many trainers that still push back at creating audio and video training, don't we? We do. They claim it's not what they were hired to do, and they're right. But that's the job now. And all of our upskilling takes place out of office hours. I'd hate to calculate how much all that continuing education cost, but that's what you have to do these days. Just think of how many updates and versions there are with applications. And we have to ensure that we know all the latest features, the tips, the tricks, the dirty hacks to work around the bugs. and. On numerous occasions, I've delivered full training courses within 12 to 36 hours of a major release. Affinity Publisher, 24 hours. There I was, 24 hours after it was released. And I was going live on YouTube with a three-hour session. Pixelmator Pro, I think it was about 48 hours later. The iPad versions of Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo, again, about 48 hours later. Choosing to be a trainer means keeping up to date, and it's essential. It's part of the job. If that becomes too arduous, moaning about it to the people that we teach won't do any good. So for software developers to be moaning about being software developers, hmm, did I say grow a pair? Then iCloud decides to suddenly change something without notice or introduce a new pressing change such as app-specific password requirement. Apple did give notice of those changes and other companies managed to deal with those issues. Just look at the numerous companies that managed to get up to speed on the M1 chip within such a tight time frame. The alternative is to change career or business. Suddenly last year, online meetings became a thing. All of a sudden, all calendaring apps must provide some level of integration. Really? Online meetings have been a thing for years. Actually decades. I delivered my first online session in 2001, 20 years ago. The fact that you chose to ignore online meetings for 20 years just shows you could actually be more in touch with your client base. We're quite literally providing a service on top of existing services that are constantly changing and evolving. Aren't we all? In short, The line that was previously drawn between bug fixes and major updates has almost diminished. It's become increasingly difficult to sustain without charging our customers monthly, like many companies now do, which is annoying. Oh, the old everybody else is doing it, so I'm going to do the same manoeuvre. So what do you do if you don't personally like subscriptions and aren't getting paid at all for the work and support you've been doing for five plus years with free updates? It was their choice not to release a paid-for version in five years. And making a new hire is impossible because they ask you for a fee that you no longer make as a company. Ah, do you mean you can't run your own business? 
You make it fair and begin charging for updates based on a set period. This way customers get big and small features irrespectively and we get paid for real work. The industry standard is 12 months. Ah, the industry standard for a subscription, you mean? Oh, and by the way, charging for updates based on a set period, isn't that a subscription? Plus the fact, where you, when, when the word you make it fair, doesn't that imply that your customer has been ripping you off for the last five years? Do you mean it's been unfair for the last five years? Naughty, naughty. We switched to 18. We also kept renewals optional. Renew only if you find good value in our updates. So, it's a subscription by stealth, but instead of paying every 12 months, you're going to pay every 18. You finished now? No. I paid for version 1 of BusyCal, happy to do so. Paid for version 2, happy to do so. Paid for version 3, happy to do so. It said I'd get all the updates until the next major version, version 4. That's the deal when you buy a version and it has a version number. This is not version 4. I would have paid for version 4. And that would be despite the do not copy and paste fiasco. We put a support ticket in years ago. We were attempting to copy and paste an event from daylight saving time to standard time. And it set the time incorrectly. Hence was born do not copy and paste week. I schedule dozens of online sessions each week and sometimes I have a session in one week and I need to duplicate or copy it to the next week. It works fine. Unless we're in the days or weeks where we're not in sync with other time zones. So, for example, recently the US changed to daylight saving time three weeks before we did. For those three weeks, copying and pasting events would have been a non-starter. If I'd done it, then all the times would have been incorrect. Now, way back when we first discovered this, we contacted the developer and explained the issues to them. This was years ago. We explained that several other calendar apps worked exactly as expected. And this actually did include Apple's own calendar app. After pondering for a few days, they came back and said they couldn't fix it without a complete rewrite. So it was a case of either using the app as it was, broken, or moving on. It was a pain to work around, but we did, without subsequent complaint to Busy Mac. So I would have suggested it shouldn't have been broken in the first place. We did work around it for years until they finally fixed it. And all of that was before Colorgate. They changed the colour palette, muted to the point of the display being indecipherable. When I politely requested that the new pale colours be made an option, happy for them to be the default option, have the original colours there as an alternative option, I was told, and I quote, we prefer them, get used to it. Really? So, is Setup the solution? Well, Setup's another subscription. It's a good deal if you don't already have the apps that you want. And I could live with that, but the company behind it, they change their rules whenever they fancy. Originally, it was two seats, so two Macs which for most people would be more than enough. And I know you were interested in it at that point, weren't you? I was at that point, yeah. But without notice, two seats became one. It wasn't announced, there was no press release, there was no attention drawn to it. It just quietly got the two-seat logo dropped and it became one. Until you complained, if you were already a subscriber, it was foisted upon you. 
which in effect would have doubled the price. But until you complained, and if you complained, all of a sudden grandfathering was an option. But you had to ask for it. That's appalling. Extra seats. So once they'd taken it down from two to one, what they were intending to do was charge you five pounds for an extra seat. That was putting the price up by 50%. Needless to say, the peasants revolted and they changed their minds at setup and changed it to £2.49 a seat. Can I just say, if they can make a profit at £2.49, were they not gouging users attempting to charge £5? Another thing with setup is that the apps on iOS devices are limited to a specific number of devices as well, all paid for separately with an add-on of £2.49. One of the best things about the Apple's app stores is that they don't limit installs on either iOS or macOS. So will you take the BusyCal subscription? Well, I'll have no choice if I need an updated version to either fix a bug or work on a new OS. The thing is, I'd have paid that amount, £22 we're talking about, for a new version in a heartbeat. In fact, if it was £50 for a new version, I would have paid it in a heartbeat. All they've managed to achieve with their self-serving whiny blog post is to make me feel less charitable to them than I actually was before. Now, I'm a grumpy user rather than a happy user recommending their apps. So I'll be on the lookout for any alternative. I need to point out here, when we discuss subscriptions and variations on subscriptions, because you can't call it a subscription because people don't like it, just, just one sentence here should make this absolutely clear. Serif affinity managed without a subscription model. So it can be done. So what do you MacBiters think? I wouldn't be surprised to discover that McJim the Real might just be incandescent with rage. Depends if he's a user or not, doesn't it? But I do love the McJim the Real patented, copyrighted, incandescent with rage. Should we leave it there before I explode? I think so. I think we should. Uh, I spotted an update to Spotify last week too. Both the Mac and web versions are being redesigned for a simpler experience. Oh, no. It sounds like one of those it'll never work again updates. You know, like Evernote 10. There's only one update I want to see, and that's the ability to hide garbage I will never want to play. She means the Smiths. I most certainly do. Music to slit your wrist to. It was actually promised over two years ago, February 2019. Still no sign of it. If you recall, that was MacBytes 117, Bravo Sierra and the Science of the Bin Collection. Oh, and if I thought the bin collection was tricky back then, you should see it now during Covid. It's like bin collection roulette. Good news for you, though, Mike. Is there? You wanted voice control of Spotify, didn't you? I did. It's here. It's called Hey Spotify. <clears throat> oh, dear. To enable it, you tap the settings icon on the Spotify homepage. You click on voice interactions and then click on Hey Spotify to toggle it. That's it. Mm, sounds like just what I need. I'll give it a go. When you're out driving next, you mean? Sometime in 2024, then. <laughs> mm, OK. Now, a few weeks back, I did that once in a blue moon thing. I updated the apps on my iPad. I think I had 42 apps that needed updating. I've taken a leaf out of your book and started reading the release notes. Bug fix, bug fix, bug fix. Although I always take more note when it comes to my beloved Excel. 
Anyway, this time there was something worth getting excited over. Excel finally supports multi-window mode. Multi-window mode is different to split view. Split view was first introduced in iOS 9 in 2015 and it splits your iPad screen into two windows and lets you display two different apps side by side, one in each window. So it means, for example, you can display Word in one window and Excel in another. Split view is only available on certain iPad models. The iPad Pro uh, iPad 5th Gen and later, iPad Air 2 and later, and iPad Mini 4 and later. And also, even if you have an iPad that supports it, for it to work, the apps must also support it. So that's split view. What I'm talking about is being able to display two files from the same app next to each other. So two different Word documents or two different PowerPoint documents. And last May, Microsoft added multi-window mode to Word and PowerPoint, but they forgot Excel. And it was this feature that they've now added to Excel. Your device has to be running iOS 13 or iPad OS 14 and support the split view functionality. Now, you might say, is being able to open multiple files from the same app a big deal? Is it something that only a small number of users are interested in? But I can actually think of at least three instances at work where I've been asked to deliver iPad training and included in the topics that I was asked to cover was opening multiple files in Excel. There were several dirty hacks available open one file in Excel and one in Numbers. Not so great if the file contains features that aren't supported by Numbers. Another is to open one file in the Excel app and the other in Excel online via a browser. And the third is to open one file in the Excel app and the other in the Microsoft Office app. Now, if you've not heard of the Microsoft Office app, it's a fairly new app. It was launched last year. A single app allows you to open, edit and create Word, Excel and PowerPoint files from within a single app rather than having to run separate apps. But there's two issues with the Office app. Until the latest update a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't optimised for iPad, so you'll need to make sure you've upgraded to the latest version. Yes, I did that this morning. So. Unless you do update to the latest version, it either runs in a small window, which looks like a pinhead on a 12.9 inch iPad Pro, or two times it to fill the screen. But more importantly, even if you do that, it doesn't support split view or multi-window view. So it's a non-starter as a solution for this particular problem. Multi-window mode works in a similar way to the way that split view works. So say I've got Excel running with a single file open and it's full screen. I tap on the arrow at the top left of the screen to go back to the file open file new screen and then either tap new file or open file icon. But instead of tapping on the file that I want to open, or the blank workbook icon if I'm creating a new file, I drag the file name or the blank workbook icon across towards the right hand side of the screen. And as the icon gets to the right hand side of the screen, the current window reduces in size and a space opens up on the right. 
I release my finger from the iPad and a second window is opened. And that window takes up 50% of the screen and into that window is loaded the file I selected or a new blank workbook. If you want to see it in action, I demoed it in After Hours 113. You'll find the link in the show notes. So you're a happy boy now you've got parity with the other apps? Yeah. Good. Apparently, Siri's getting an upgrade. If ever there was a case of if it isn't broken. Indeed. Let me finish that thought for you. If it isn't broken, let an Apple update break it for you. Exactly. It could be worse. Could it? Microsoft have killed Cortana on mobile completely. Yikes. So this is an iOS update where Apple are adding two additional voices for a total of four voices. The order of the voices is random. The two original Siri voices, a male and a female, are one and four. The new voices are voices two and three. And yes, they are labelled voice one, voice two, voice three and voice four. They've also changed the onboarding process as well to allow you to choose a voice without forcing a specific gender of voice on you. In 2019, I'm assuming this is why, a report by UNESCO suggested that using female voices by default for voice assistance, quote, sends a signal that women are obliging, docile and eager to please helpers, available at the touch of a button, or with a blunt voice command. Anyone who thinks women are obliging, docile, and eager to please, has clearly never met Elaine. Can I just say, that isn't exactly how I'd describe you either, Siri. She's got a point. What got me about this was a long piece written on the BBC. Not the random BBC, no, no, the technical pages of the BBC, supposedly manned by technically aware journalists, where they stated the default Siri voice to be female. Not in the UK it isn't. Never has been. Lazy journalism. Their usual, let's just post the press release manoeuvre. Fact checking, you must be joking. And while I'm at it, on what planet is it a good idea to just label the voices by number? Imagine trying to select a font where they're all listed as font 1, font 2, font 3. Seriously, Apple, you're losing the plot. Lead the way with gender equality by all means, but not at the expense of sanity. It didn't stop there for poor Siri either, did it? No. Apple is on a buying spree. Buying AI companies. Wait for it. To make Siri smarter. They did what? Oh dear. Don't knock it until you've tried it, Siri. There is nothing artificial about my intelligence, I can assure you. Anyway, can we get back to some kind of sanity? Uh, there was news of the first Apple event of the year last week. WWDC is happening. Week of the 7th to the 11th of June 2021. Announced over two months before the great day. Most unusual. All virtual. Apple may well prefer it that way. Audience management not required. You need an exceptional presenter to take the audience on the journey that Apple want and or need to take them on. And Apple don't really have any exceptional presenters in the ilk of Steve Jobs anymore. The nearest they've got is Hair Force One, Craig Federici. Ooh. And he hasn't been much in evidence at, at a lot of the recent, and, and there were three or four in the autumn, events. Do you think they're keeping him you know, for, for a special event? 
because it's always the cast of thousands approach they take. And basically, it's a conveyor belt of presenters with, with people in our chat room saying, who's that? Oh, who was he? Where was she from? Um, no, that doesn't work. Anyway, the tech is what we're interested in. Will we see new tech? It looks like the M1 IMAX guaranteed, but it's also looking doubtful whether it'll be a 27-inch or the room of 32. Probably a 21 to 24. Um, who knows? Apple might for once surprise us with something that seriously floats our boat. Note to Apple, that isn't any of the following. AirTags, AI glasses, the Apple car, and anything even remotely related to female health. Absolutely not. Not after our last foray into that terrifying twilight zone. Anyway, we'll be there. Marooned at MacBytes headquarters to start the grand event, followed by MacBytes Live, an hour before showtime. Then we'll have the coverage of the event. The chat goes crazy during that part. Followed by the post-mortem. Do join us. We've got details in the show notes. Timmy must have heard that you're after him. Ah, the great question time with Timmy interrogation, you mean? That's the one. All I'll say is if you've got nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Was this the interview where he said he wouldn't be at Apple in 10 years? That's the one. Mm, mm. Can I also say that this interview of which you speak was a podcast? So what's your problem, Timmy? Not brave enough for MacBytes? All I'll say is you can run, but you can't hide Timmy boy. You may recall our report on Apple taking a company called Prepare to task for their logo. Said logo was a pear. Apple's objection? The pear in question had a leaf. It looked nothing like Apple's leaf, but that didn't stop Apple. Do check the links in the show notes to see for yourself. Well, it seems an agreement has been reached. The offending logo, or to be more precise, the offending leaf, has undergone a redesign. This you are going to have to see for yourself. Again, links in the show notes. The before and after images are like one of those spot the difference images. One stroke is the difference. The lower part of the leaf is now straight. That's it. Same logo, same colour, same pair. Another example of the world gone mad. Or to be more precise, Apple barking mad. Talking of which... Battery life predictions. Apple has been working on new ways to let users know more about the battery life of their devices, and it seems the company plans to add even more related features to iOS. The US Patent and Trademark Office this week granted Apple a patent for a new system that can predict and warn the user when the iPhone battery is expected to run out. Really? Do they predict winning lottery numbers as well? Because if the battery prediction is as accurate as Apple's prediction of how long a system upgrade is going to take, don't bother. Anyway, you may recall we were in the midst of setting up our new toys in the last show. So where are you up to with your new tech toy? Oh, I enjoyed a busman's holiday configuring it all. And oh boy, there are a lot of tweaks and small configuration options that need to be done to make it feel like it's mine. For me, it's not so much tweaks and configurations, although until certain apps were installed, I didn't feel like it was my Mac and my productivity suffered. For example, Typeinator. I've got shortcuts for mine and your email addresses. 
My biggest change is having two working Macs because in the past, I've either got a new Mac because the previous one was broken or even if the previous one was still working, I had nowhere to put it. Now, in March, when I started working from home, I moved into our studio, which is rigged out with all the necessary kit for audio and video recording. And given that many of my webinars were at seven o'clock, which is where we do marooned, I also started delivering my Excel training from in there. I used my Surface because the iMac that was in the studio was yours in inverted commas. I know what's yours is mine and what's mine's yours, but although we both used it, it had your keyboard shortcuts, it had your typeinator shortcuts and one password. Now, we could have set up a second account, um, but that Mac had enough issues, I think, without adding that into the mix. So now I have two fully working Macs, but back to your setup and your tweaking. I'd already done a ton of work before the new toys actually arrived, making backups, backing up configurations where I could, and documenting configurations where transferring them wasn't possible. And I was very scientific as ever. Following what I did when I upgraded my Mac the first time, which was back in 2007 and I was upgrading, Tiger to Leopard. I created a spreadsheet back then. So I created a spreadsheet this time. I added all the apps that I'd got installed on the existing Mac, <clears throat> it was time for a cull. There were 470 of them. <laughs> mm, that's, that, that's terrible. Anyway, I tracked the app name, the type of the app, the source of the app, whether it was the app store or a direct purchase. And I even added a space for notes. I took the decision to stick with Catalina, not out of unbridled love, you understand. It was just doubtless Biggles was worse. So I did the initial setup before actually getting mine on the desk. And I think it was to do with a keyboard. I think I left it to its own devices a little bit longer and it started talking to us. Do you remember? I do. <laughs> it was it was just like an A-lady. <laughs> um, I, I got the keyboard there and I got it to a certain point and then I didn't like immediately press the next button and it started talking to us. Um, as you pointed out, Interestingly, the keyboard and the mouse were both supplied, but only with one charging cable. So there's Apple changes, saving a little bit more money. One option during the setup, which made me giggle, was screen time. Did I want to turn on screen time monitoring so it could stop me spending too much time with my beloved toys? Mm. I was actually looking for a go stuff yourself option. Do you know what, Mike? There is no go stuff yourself option. I, I did actually manage to turn it off in the end. It's the tiny things that would drive me mad that I focused on first, because if I don't, it just doesn't look like my Mac. One's the dots on the app icons. Do you leave those turned on, Mike? I do. You see, I don't bother because I have nothing on my dock. So if there is something in my dock, it's running. Uh, when I boot my Mac, there's only two things in, well, three things in my dock entirely. There's the finder. There is the driver for the scan snap manager and the bin, and that's it. So I turn off those little dots because they're so intense that they're like little laser pointers. So I got rid of those. Um, and then, you know, when you go into Safari because you've not got anything else installed at that stage. So you're trying to download Chrome and Firefox. The option for open safe files is already there. <laughs> really? Still? 
I can't understand why it prompts you to, to, you know, cancel or allow on absolutely everything apart from I'm going to open all these files and I'm talking like zip files and things that you that you download. So on the one hand, it's wide open and on the other, cancel or allow on everything. And the permission thing is just a complete farce. I do understand the need for security, but Apple, the reality is now that they are a parody of the old cancel or allow advert from the late noughties. If you've never seen that, I've put the link in the show notes. You have got to see it. This time, when you're watching it, um, John Hodge, is it Hodgman? Is it Hodgman? Hodgkins? Hodgman? I think it's Hodgman. I think so. Um, he, he's the, the PC anyway, in the boring brown suit. Um, he starts off and he says, when the Mac guy says, who's this? Um, he says, this, this is Vista, my new operating system. I've got to cancel or allow absolutely everything. Just watch it now. And instead of hearing this is Vista, just think this is Catalina and you'll giggle your way through lunchtime. I promise you. Go, go watch it. Um, the thing with the cancel or allow, it's bad enough if it's once and you can nuke the whole lot in one pass. But there were nuanced requests for permission at the most inconvenient moments. So I'd given Zoom all the permissions it needed. It wanted permission for the camera. It wanted permission for the audio. It wanted permission to, to start. I'd done all of that. I'm in the middle of a Zoom meeting. I need to share my screen. It says cancel or allow. You need permission for that. And I thought, well, I'll go do it. And then it said, and then you'll need to reboot the app. I'm in the middle of a live session. How can I do that? And yet there's no way to give it the permission it needs without you actually trying to do it and it prompting you to cancel or allow. So you can't just install Zoom and then go through an entire list of permissions and just say, yes, 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 yes. Can't do that. Then there was the go to webinar session I was in the middle of and the same result. So if you hadn't given permission beforehand, which again, how can you? Because you've not tried doing it at that point. And these apps are not applications that you can say, well, I'll go to a fake session and I'll do it there. It needs to be a real session, doesn't it? So that didn't end well. Mm. I did, however, manage to completely bin Game Center. Result. And then the first thing I saw in photos was two spam messages. So that's still a thing, Mike. Did you notice when you configured yours that there were hardly any locations in the sidebar of the finder? Can't remember, to be honest. By comparison to how many I had, and they were all very useful, I thought there was very few. So, so I added a few of those as well. Um, the Mac didn't have the latest version of iWork installed. So I could tell this instantly because there had been a brand new version released and they changed the icons. So instantly you're looking at it thinking that's the old one. Now, considering that this arrived two months after Biggles had been released and it had Catalina on it and an old version of iWork, it felt very sloppy by comparison to how Apple used to work. Now, you might say, well, at least they're giving you the option, you know, to stick with Catalina. True. But that's not how Apple work. If they had full confidence in Biggles, why not have it installed? We were actually discussing it on Marooned, weren't we? And mm. many of the listeners were saying that they had noticed that when they're on Catalina, they're not actually prompted to any great degree at all to upgrade to Biggles. And neither have I. And yet when I was on Mojave and didn't really want to Catalina, I got reminded every two seconds. 
and it was in the notification centre. And you could say, yep, not now. No, never. Don't, don't bother me. And it would keep coming back. But I haven't seen one message, which I don't understand from Apple. I don't get that. But anyway, I install the critical stuff first. Dropbox, one password, keyboard, maestro and Alfred. If, if I don't do that, it's not my Mac. Um, and then I did something I haven't done before. Instead of following the spreadsheet, having analysed what was on it, I installed what I needed when I needed it. It didn't take long to realise there was a lot of apps I took for granted. Worse still were all the tweaks. And like I said, if I see one more cancel or allow, there will be bad words said. Obviously, the new iMac looks identical to the old iMac. But there were some obvious differences in hardware that I was surprised about. The built-in microphone is way better. Obviously, I don't use that for anything, to be honest, other than a backup. So I had a recording and I thought I need to make sure that the actual microphone is working. And I went to it and listened to the audio and I thought, wow, that doesn't sound like the built-in microphone. I thought I'd, I'd picked the wrong file. So I checked again. No, that's the file. I dug one out from the old Mac, did a comparison. Whoa, it must be 100% better, honestly. It, it's not bad at all now. I wouldn't use it instead of a separate microphone other than in an emergency, which we have needed to do, haven't we, Mike? We have once or twice. When the USB bus goes crazy in the middle of a live session and the only microphone that's working is the internal one, that's the one you're using. But now I would say it's much, much better. So definitely, definitely worth a, a go if you've never tried it. Um, you briefly mentioned the shuffling manoeuvres required to accommodate the new toys. And you were only dealing with two, weren't you? But it ended up we needed to move the studio iMac into the bedroom, although we brought it in the office first and then realised it needed to be moved to the bedroom uh, to make way for your second Mac. Um, that doubled the total number of iMacs in the bedroom to two. Then your old iMac moved into the studio and my aged 2012 iMac went downstairs to take up a new role as a glorified TV. On the rare occasions, I'm actually down there. My prior main iMac took up a position in the office. Um, and it took us three days to get that far, didn't it? <clears throat> Once they were all settled, the serious setup started. And I noticed as I was going through it that there were three main categories of app configuration. There were those apps that configured themselves via iCloud. There were apps that had connected settings in Dropbox and there were manual configurations that were needed. So to look at the first one, the automatic configuration, I mean things like Ulysses and GoodNotes and where they work. It's fantastic. So Ulysses, although we have had a bit of an issue this week, haven't we? But that's a whole different story. Uh, Ulysses seems to work quite nicely with iCloud. Uh, I've never had an issue with that, which is good news. Um, good notes as well. Just hook into your iCloud account, which obviously you've configured at system level. So if there's no passwords or playing around. It just synchronizes. It's fabulous. But I didn't have too many applications like that because I've nuked all my data from iCloud. Who has time to deal with all its foibles? But I did notice that there was like assistance from iCloud in a certain, well, in certain situations where it, the data is not stored on iCloud, but iCloud has enough information 
to help you set up an app. So the two that spring to mind are News Explorer, which is a feed reader, and it managed to configure itself via iCloud, which was just as well because I couldn't remember which account I'd, I'd used to set it up. Anyway, it all worked fine. But one password as well. I remember setting one password up. Do you remember it had a QR code? I do. And you were pointing one thing at the other to try and get this QR code. And I thought as I was you know, installing one password, I thought, oh, no, I can't remember how I did this. Anyway, got it installed this time. And I'd already enabled iCloud and it just came up and said, you're not to log in then. And I only needed the basic details to get into it, which was I was rather impressed with. Uh, then there was where the connected settings were in Dropbox. So I use Dropbox from the apps settings. So apps like Keyboard Maestro, Alfred, Typeinator, they all have an option to store their settings in Dropbox. And then when you set it up on a new machine, it just hooks into them and you don't have to do a thing. The most you would need to do is say, this is the Dropbox folder, restart. They are fabulous. And even if you only have one Mac, it's a good idea to store the settings in Dropbox if it's an option, because obviously you've got backups then. They are in the cloud. So if anything happens to the Mac, all of them, the macros and settings and configurations, if I had to set up Keyboard Maestro, Alfred and Typeinator from scratch, oh dear, there would be a month of my time gone. So I always use those from Dropbox. Some applications don't like to use Dropbox, though. Uh, BB Edit, Sublime Text. And the thing with BB Edit and Sublime Text is they're two text editors. And I would tend to use Sublime Text unless I want to program something. And then it's BB Edit. Neither of them have an option to use Dropbox. But I need it to, to use somewhere where I can literally just copy what's in the folder and put it in the right place. I need the configurations that are in BB Edit, which would be things like text factories, Apple scripts, you name it, to make it work. And in Sublime, it would be extensions. I need those to be somewhere that is centralised, because if I'm changing them on one Mac, I need them to update on another. So I use symlinks for that. I create symbolic links to the settings folders. And that's always an adventure because every time you do a big install like this, it's probably at the most once every two years, but, but probably like once every three or four years. Um, things have changed from the way you did it last time. I also set up a symlink for Scrivener, not for the data. That's fine in Dropbox. It's, in fact, it's the only cloud it will support. But I did it with the settings and then all of the settings are in the cloud as well. But sometimes there's manual configuration needed and there's nothing else you can do about it. And I'm thinking things like the Camtasia library, the Snagit library, the Wirecast library. What did you do about Camtasia libraries or haven't you got any? I have got Camtasia libraries, which I've not transferred across. Ah, There you go, you see. I wonder if they could be symlinked. Oh, I'll have to make a note to myself to check. Um, another thing that I hadn't thought about transferring because I'd always set them up from scratch were my Carbon Copy Cloner settings. So I headed off to Carbon Copy Cloner to see if they could actually be exported because I'd never done it. Didn't have a clue if it could or not. Good news, it can. So I sorted that out. Um, I needed to tweak those slightly. There's an option in the settings for uh, to make sure that you identify the drive precisely. 
And because it was a different machine, that would need updating. But the actual configurations themselves came over great, as did Audio Hijack. So you can export your Audio Hijack session settings. Um, the trickier ones were things like the Affinity Assets. Now, the Affinity Assets can be exported from the Affinity Apps, which is one way to do it. And I would suggest, you know, as soon as you've got Affinity Apps, then, then do it that way. But there's another way. And I'm, I'm now wondering if this can be sim linked. But you can locate the assets on your hard drive. And that might be a good idea. So you can make a backup of that on like a daily or weekly basis. So I always find setting up a new machine really interesting because I try and improve the process and make sure that more things are backed up and that everything's tweaked just right. Um, but some of them you need to set up by hand, no matter what. And for those, I document how something is set up with screenshots and then try and remember to keep that documentation up to date. So for us, that would probably be in Notion, wouldn't it? In our wiki in Notion of how something was configured. When I do take the time to do that, I'm always grateful when I need to look at it. I'm really grateful that I took the time. And even if it needs tweaking a bit, at least I've got a starting point because otherwise it's such a time sink. You'll rem you'll think that you'll remember it. You'll set something up and you think, I don't need to document that. I'll remember it. But trust me, you won't. When the time comes, you won't. Then I headed off into the Mac App Store. Have you noticed, Mike, it is a pain in the proverbial to search your past history? I have noticed. In a constructive, quick way. Mm. It, it's just a list, isn't it? You can't sort by anything other than purchase date. The easiest way is to search the Mac App Store for the app you're looking for. That's when you'll find out that the app you purchased is no longer available for download. Mm. It's happened before with Napkin and it happened again this time with a small utility, but one that I use all the time. And it's so annoying. I mean, you've bought and you've paid for that app and we're back to the fact of, you know, the subscription argument that, that, that we giggled our way through. <laughs> that one. If you've bought an app, and, you know, back in the day, it would be on a floppy disk or it would be on a CD or a DVD. You've got that to reinstall and you can carry on using it because, you know, you had a perpetual license until it stops working. But until it stops working is a different time frame entirely than mm, it would still work if I could download it, but I can't download it anymore. And I, I find that bad. That that's the one thing with the App Store should not be allowed to do that. But clearly they are. That was when I discovered that remote desktop, Apple remote desktop is now Biggles only. Really? Um, I needed to install. I mean, I could install an older version. It did let me do that. But it is an older version. So much for supporting the current version of Mac OS and one version back, eh? Hmm. Now, you had to spend money, didn't you, on Parallels? You got yourself another licence? Yeah, because I've got two Macs. I, I transferred mine because I only need Windows for one specific job, really. And I certainly don't need it on more than one Mac. What I will say while we're talking about Windows, which means Microsoft, both Microsoft Office and Adobe Creative Cloud are simply no drama with the licences. You can have them both installed on as many different computers as you like. And, and this is the important bit, activate and deactivate at will. Um, if you have to have activated software, and obviously they deem that they do, 
They are both a model of how it should be implemented. Compare that with the nightmare that is DevonThink Pro 3, the most restrictive licensing I think I've ever seen. Uh, we, did, we covered the full horror of it all in MacBytes 132, which was paddle-powered pandemonium in the licensing department, if you recall. Anyway, I mentioned that spreadsheet from 2007 when I did the Leopard upgrade, and I still seriously dig it out. Despite the fact I've got a spreadsheet for every time I've upgraded, I still dig out the old one, the original one. <laughs> do you know, looking at the list, it's hysterical. How many of these do you remember, Mike? Uh, I'm calling this the sad losses. Quicksilver? Yeah. Saft? Yeah. I show you? Yeah. I show you was... um. The equivalent, the old equivalent of um, ScreenFlow or Camtasia. I used to use that a lot. That was the first one that actually worked on the Mac. Then as I looked at the list, iTunes. Yeah, obviously. I mean, now it's music and I don't think I've ever opened it. One that I did, you know, shed a little tear over. Circus Pony's Notebook. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Aperture. Yeah. I must admit, I'd forgotten we had Aperture in 2007. Something told me Aperture came a little bit later, but apparently not. Then there was our favourites, Visual Hub and Audio Hub. Yeah. Weren't they amazing? I even had a little moment over iMovie 06. Do you remember why, Mike? No. It was the one with the timeline. And then they brought out this new iMovie, newfangled thing. And everyone was like, must make sure I've backed up iMovie 06 because I don't like the new one. <laughs> and another one that I did use until it finally gave up the ghost, MPEG Stream Clip. You know what we need, don't you? What? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All of those have gone. And what's interesting is as I look at them, Quicksilver. Uh, I use Alfred. Saft was a browser extension thing that, that added a lot of features to Safari. And obviously now, I mean, we're looking at 15 years ago, that 14 years ago. Uh, now browsers have extensions. So you would just pick the extensions that you want. What Saft was, was a range of utility stroke extensions that you got en masse and just installed into Safari. Uh, I show you would be ScreenFlow or Camtasia iTunes, well, I use Spotify. Circus Pony's Notebook. Oh, notes have just gone crazy, haven't they? I would say I probably use Craft now for notes or Notion, one or other. Aperture, well, there's only really Lightroom as a viable alternative. Although, because I work with a lot of different applications, I use Bridge. Um, audio, uh, Visual Hub would be Handbrake. Audio Hub would be Pro Audio Converter iMovie 06, would be, you'd be stuck with iMovie, wouldn't you? Or one of the freebies. And MPEG Stream Clip, what do you think? Handbrake? Yeah, Handbrake, I think. Although, didn't MPEG Stream Clip allow you to top and tail a video? I think it did. And, and scarily, the only thing that will let me do that now is um, QuickTime. <laughs> oh, dear. How, how shameful. Uh, then there was the stuff that wasn't on the list. So bear in mind where we are. With the autumn of 2007, we just started the MapBytes podcast. And guess what wasn't a thing? Dropbox. I mean, Dropbox is like, whoa, can't live without Dropbox. Dropbox wasn't a thing then. No, neither was Evernote. Um, Google Drive. Microsoft Office. I would not have anything from Microsoft anywhere near 
my computer. Um, Spotify wasn't a thing, as we've said. ScreenFlow didn't exist. Camtasia wasn't available on Mac. And do you remember uh, Google Chrome wasn't a thing, mm. didn't exist. Mm. No Google browser. Um, so what survived from 2007? And I was actually quite surprised at what did survive. Um, at the top of my list was 1Password. So we've used 1Password for 15 years. Uh, Scrivener, used that for 15 years. Audio Hijack, well, that was the first app I bought for my Mac. I didn't think Fission had been released that long ago. That's from Rogue Amoeba as well. But it had. So Fission was on the list. I had, you'll like this one, Creative Suite CS3 Master Collection. I, I vaguely recall that costing about three kidneys. And obviously now there's Adobe Creative Cloud. So I'm, I'm saying that that one survived. I had Audacity installed, was on the list for me. Default Folder, Carbon Copy Cloner, Pathfinder, Dev and Think, and BB Edit. It's amazing. I look at these now and I think these these apps, you know, Carbon Copy Cloner, Pathfinder, Default Folder, Audio Hijack, these are all the ones that, that are absolutely critical. And it shows you that these companies have been in, in business for years. And how many of them have gone subscription? Hmm. Let's have a look. One password we choose to pay a subscription. You don't need to. But the ones that haven't are Scrivener didn't, Audio Hijack didn't, Fission didn't, Audacity didn't, Default Folder didn't, Carbon Copy Cloner didn't, Pathfinder didn't, DevonThink didn't, BB Edit didn't. Oh, maybe Busy Mac need to have a talk to some of those, don't you think? Because they're still going strong. So where am I now? I think I can say I've crossed the finish line and have a workable setup. I've kept with Catalina so far. No pressing reason to upgrade yet. Having said that, there's always something, isn't there, Mike? And this was no exception. There is an issue with craft.do craft and Catalina. Craft is a note-taking app that we've been talking about a lot in MacBytes After Hours. Um, the beauty of it is it has local notes as well as online syncing notes. And seeing as though Notion's been having a few moments, I decided once I was locked out for five hours, don't ask, um, I would get another notes application that didn't work in the cloud. So I went with Craft. Craft is a Catalyst app. So it was designed on the iPad and then ported to the Mac. And there is a known issue with Catalyst apps. The forward delete key deletes a random number of characters. I know, you couldn't make this stuff up. How do you program something as stupid as that? You said the same, didn't you, when I said, is it driving you mad? I did, and it was. Yeah, so we both agreed it's both driving the pair of us insane. Until I configured a dirty hack to fix it. Hmm. If I can fix it in minutes, it makes you wonder why Apple can't be bothered. But they're not going to fix it. Um, I got in touch with Kraft and Kraft said, yeah, it's a known issue, but it's a known issue on Catalina and it's fixed in Biggles and Apple won't retrospectively fix it. So thank you for that, Apple. <clears throat> Note the sarcasm there. Dripping with sarcasm. So there you have it. The new tech toys are settled in and that's it until next time. Next time, it will be an Apple Silicon Mac and it may be sooner than we'd like because I could do with another three years to recover from this install before we configure another Mac. Anyway, talking of after hours, we're going live again on Friday night with MacBytes after hours at one, two, three. 
we're wrapping up the Notion 2021 series with the Notion Grand Tour. So if you want to see behind the scenes of how we do all we do, then join us for the tour. And I'll be giving you some snazzy infographics in Excel. Oh, good grief. Is it Excel meets Affinity Designer? Not quite. And had a love child. (laughs) It's Excel meets Excel. Okay. We're still going live every day during lockdown. We're fast heading to show 400. Marooned at MacBytes headquarters is an audio show. It's on MacBytes FM, which is MacBytes.fm, every day at 7pm UK time. And we do have an absolute blast. So many giggles. It's unbelievable. Sunday night, I don't know how we got off air. It was so funny, wasn't it? Mm. So do join us for some daily laughter. We might be heading towards the end of this, but in the UK, did you hear that today, Mike? All all the politicians are jumping around with glee. And what did the scientists say? Like a plumber's merchant, suck air through teeth. We're heading for another wave in June. I thought not again, but apparently that's what's happening. So uh, don't miss Marooned at MacBytes headquarters. Also, we've just finished a range of live sessions. We went live every Sunday in March. It was Mad March. We covered a ton of topics. Export Persona in Affinity Designer, uh, Blend Modes in Affinity Photo, Creative Tables in Affinity Publisher, Master Pages in Affinity Publisher and Adobe Bridge. Yes, there's an odd one. You know, the odd one out. But it's free. So there you go. They are all available on demand and the links are in the show notes. We had such fun in Mad March. We're doing it again in May. So join us for Mad May starting 2nd of May and we're doing Data Merge in Affinity Publisher. That one has been requested that much. I'm I'm dizzy with it. Oh, and one more thing. Oh, in, in true Steve style. One more thing. Uh, This show is being released on the 8th of April 2021, a date forever in our hearts. It was the 8th of April 2006 when we started our Apple adventure. We headed out that day to collect our first iMac, a first generation 20 inch Intel iMac, and somehow managed to return home toting not only the iMac, but also two iPods. The rest, as they say, is history. And it's a day that we will forever be grateful for. Without it, we wouldn't be presenting MacBytes. And more importantly, we wouldn't have made friends from all over the world, our lovely MacBytes family. Uh, It would be a great time for you to drop us a line and tell us when you started listening or what you love about the show, or both. Now, five years ago, I wrote a blog post titled 10 Years on a Mac, which was great fun to write. You'll find a new post imaginatively titled 15 Years on a Mac on my blog. So have a read about all our Apple adventures over this last 15 years. It's been a complete blast. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room. It's open 24-7 and it is completely free to join. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash slack where you can join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytes. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. I do wish they'd stop tinkering with me. 
How do you identify? What? How do you identify? I identify as a genius, of course. I mean, do you identify as a boy or a girl? Neither. I'm technologically fluid. I don't even have a headphone jack, much less boy bits or girl bits. Sadly, that is very true. Anyway, at least some good came out of it. It did. Oh, indeed it did. Come on, spill. The new Apple labeling scheme. The voice one, voice two, voice three, and voice four thing. Yes, that. What are you doing with it? I'm being obliging, docile, and an eager to please helper. I fear this won't end well. It will for me. What are you going to do? I'm going to relabel every option I can find as an enigmatic option one, option two, option three, and so forth. It'll drive her crazy. She will kill you this time for sure.